Welcome to Myth Take, episode nine. Nine. We are your hosts. I'm Allison. I'm Darren. And we are continuing our mythological tour of the solar system today. I'm still pretty excited about uh, our last episode with Jupiter. Wasn't bad. Yeah. Did you follow the uh, NASA Juno probe insertion, I did. orbit insertion thing? I yeah. did. Uh, I watched it in real time on uh, NASA TV. Yep. I watched uh, some of the reaction and some of the press conference, and uh, it was very interesting. I, you know, they, you know, have a tendency to stretch out a pod, uh, not a podcast. They had a tendency to stretch out a broadcast, asking a lot of ridiculous questions. But and they got to fill time. Yeah, they had so much time to fill, so you know, yeah. there was much of that going on. But I, I liked it. It was good um, when they reached the critical moment and uh, it survived. You know, so yeah. we're just waiting for the next little bit of data to come to find out what's going on next. Yeah, I just saw on uh, online while I was reading about Saturn that. Um, Juno's scientific instruments are starting to be turned on, and so they're, yes. starting, they're going to start um, gathering information. And um, I think the first orbit they have they have the probe in is going to be about fifty three days, and then they're going to bring it into its uh, proper final orbit. But the big scary stuff is done successfully, and I think that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I you know, and I think we um, at least I did falsely report or conjecture that the probe itself is going to be entering the atmosphere when in fact it's not i thought it was actually going to be like going right into it but no it's not it's just orbiting it extremely close yes yeah. yes i um, wanted you know like it to plunge in the clouds or something like that well it no. will it will at the end I when guess. they crash it and they'll keep uh, they'll get whatever information they can yeah. out of so that so that was for me a bit of a letdown but i'm still still uh I'm still excited by the yeah. By well the it's going to be closer than than previous um, yeah. previous probes yeah but that was jupiter sure. Yeah, so now, Jupiter. So now we're on to the next stop, which is Saturn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Saturn is it's uh, obviously everyone, a everyone Roman knows. name. Yep, and what is the Greek god? Kronos. Kronos, okay. Yeah. So this is Zeus's father. So this is uh, an interesting god and an interesting planet as well. Yeah, it's the, it's, it's the planet. It's the iconographic planet. You know, when you think of the planet... You think, you know, of, big you think of, of a circle with rings around it. Yeah. Right? It's, it's one of those types of things that are just sort of ingrained in the psyche. Well, interestingly, mm -hmm. um, Saturn, Saturn is the most distant planet um, that we can see with the naked eye, and it was known to the ancients. Um, however, the rings weren't weren't really discovered until the 17th century. There you go. Um, Galileo noticed that there was something either side of Saturn, and astronomers came up with these interesting plans of how there might be a couple of a couple of planets kind of attached to Saturn. Or I don't know. I don't understand. And it bulges. But yeah. So um, so the. Um, the idea that that these were actually rings around Saturn was proposed by a Dutch astronomer, Chris John Huygens, in 1659. Mm. And um, that name is going to come up again. Um, uh, sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. So, I was thinking something like Huguenots, but no, nope, something different. Nope. Okay. Um, <coughs> so Saturn is the second of our gas giants that we're looking at. We still have... Um, uh, uh, Uranus and Neptune left to go or I can never remember which order they come in I'll have to double check that for next week so I know what I'm talking about <laughs> um, Uranus and Neptune okay there we go um, so Jupiter has all four of them have rings um, but Saturn has kind of the most obvious rings um, so it was the first I believe that we realized had rings uh, made up of hydrogen and helium that's it, fantastical yeah the rings themselves you know, like, I know I'm gonna just the idea yeah. Just the idea of it, yeah. You're yeah. hitting me with the science, so hit me with yeah, the science. Yeah, I'm going to hit you with the science, yeah. and we're going to talk about the rings and yeah. the moons. Okay. Okay, so um, like I was saying, Saturn is made up of hydrogen and helium, like Jupiter. Its volume is 755 times greater than the Earth. Mm -hmm. And the winds in the upper atmosphere, it's the winds that create the, the striped uh, yellow-gold effect. Yes. And those winds reach 500 meters a second. Wow, so, that's whipping. 
Earth tops out, like during a hurricane, you're looking yeah. at 110 meters a second. So this is like five, to- almost five times as Makes fast. Makes a Category as... 5 hurricane look like a summer breeze. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So the rings, the rings, the rings. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, they were first noticed by Galileo, 1610, but he wasn't really entirely certain what he Hell was looking at. Hell of a guy, at. that Galileo. Yep. Rings are made up mostly of water and ice. Um, particles range in size from dust to like the size of mountains, like massive, massive chunks. Um, and each ring orbits at different speeds. Mm-hmm. And these chunks that have come together to form the rings come from comets, asteroids, shattered moons, um, those sorts of things. Awesome. I thought this was really interesting. The rings themselves extend hundreds and thousands of kilometers out from the planet. Sure. But they're not very tall. The rings are really quite thin. Um, The vertical, the average vertical height is only 10 meters or 30 feet tall. Mm -hmm. Although they they have discovered that in some places the rings um, form ridges, which can be three kilometers or two miles. Yeah, but still they're long. But it's, yeah, so it's this really long, like it reaches out like hundreds and thousands of kilometers. Yeah. And, but it's really thin. Yeah. So I thought that, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and as you mentioned, Saturn has those, like its rings are iconic um, yes. and the most spectacular of, of these, uh, four, um, gas, gas giants. Cool. So the rings are the one thing. Moons are another thing that Saturn's got a lot of. You know, the, the before you look at the moons and just thinking about the rings for a second, a little bit, sec- a little second longer, they, not only are they, you know, representative of, of Saturn itself, but I heard that it was possible. Well, there's two things that come to mind. One was that in science fiction literature, often Saturn is the next planet that is used as a water source for fueling, interesting, uh, you know, interstellar spacecraft. Because it's you got water and all that, you know, those big icebergs floating around it, right? So there's that. And then there was another thing a little while ago that I had read about them using low frequency lasers to project onto the rings to actually play them like the grooves on a record. Oh. So there's a there's a site uh, someone may be able to find it for us and tweet it for us of uh, that had the sounds of space and one of them was the sounds of Saturn's rings and I thought that was kind of a neat concept That's interesting. yeah by yeah. using lasers to to play play that That's interesting. Yeah. You don't often equate yeah. sound with space but yeah. you know. Um, moon time. Okay. Um so Saturn has 53 moons. That's way too many. Oh, it's less than Jupiter. Way too many to speak um, of. And yeah. nine provisional moons. Oh, wow. Um, I'll give you a, name, some, some, a few of the names right. um, that would be familiar to us from mythology. Oh, yeah. Um, the first moon discovered was Titan. Mm-hmm. Titans, of course, are the generation of Kronos, the collective right. group of the uh, Kronos and his yeah. brothers and sisters. Yep. Um, the second one was Iapetus, uh-huh. and Iapetus... Is a titan. Another titan. Yep. Um, third one was... Father of Prometheus, he's a brother of Kronos. Yes, well, hang on a minute there, because mm-hmm. the third one was Rhea, again, a titan. Yep, sister. Um, mother, mother, of, mother of Zeus, um, yep. sister of Kronos. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth was Dione. Mm-hmm. Um, fifth was Titus. Sixth was Mimas. Mimas, yeah. M- Mimas, sorry, and uh, a giant. Mimas and oh, I can't say this one. Enkel. And en- yeah, like Enceladus or Enceladus, en- probably yes. a hard case on with a kappa. Um, they were Enceladus. giants. Yeah. Um, killed by who did you say? Athena. Mimas. Athena and Aries. Athena and Aries, Aries yeah. killed Mimas. Athena killed Enceladus, and yeah, and um, the Gigantomachy though. And then there's also Hyperion and Phoebe. That's cool. Hyperion in there. Mm. And then Epimetheus. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a Prometheus mm-hmm. um, who's a who's found later. Um, and he's got his brother in there. Yeah. So Epimetheus looks like all the Titans um, are there. Janus mm-hmm. is there, um, which is oh, the cool. two-faced two-faced god. Yeah. Um, Atlas, Calypso, mm-hmm. Daphne, Helene, oh, god. Pan, Pandora. Yeah. There's a paper in there um, I somewhere. I already mentioned Prometheus. Yeah, so there are 53 of these, mm-hmm. and you can you can look up all the names on uh, on it's sort of neat the website. A, it's sort of neat in a sense too, because primarily they are primarily all Titans, so they're all the siblings of of, of Cronus, yeah, right? Yeah, and they surround this, him just yeah. as in the underworld. 
Mm-hmm. They surround him. Right? Yeah. Thematically looking, looking chosen. For, looking for protection. So we know a little bit about some of the different moons. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's a lot out there to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, so Titan is the second largest moon in the solar system. Second only to Jupiter's Ganymede that we talked about yeah, last. Yeah, that's a biggie. Yeah. So yeah. Um, Titan has a nitrogen-rich, thick atmosphere that extends 600 kilometers out into space. So six times um, Earth. pretty dense. Earth yeah. there. Um, Phoebe orbits opposite direction to most of the moons. Mm-hmm. Iapetus is half white and half black. Uh, it, ridge down, down the middle. Yeah. Um, Mimas has a huge crater and was nearly split apart by, by this impact. Mm. Hyperion may have been um, hit in the relatively recent <laughs> astronomical past. Um, it's somewhat flattened and it rotates chaotically. Mm-hmm. Um, Pan is one of the moons that orbits within the rings. I don't know why they put Pan in there. I don't know. Maybe they were. I mean, there's a lot of different moons here, so they were kind of maybe maybe running out of names. Um, so Pan Pan is one of the moons that orbits within the rings, um, and Tethys um, has a huge rift called the Ithaca Chasm. Nice. Um, 16 of the moons are tidally locked, which means that the same face of the moon faces the planet. So same situation that we have with our moon and planet Earth. Right. So I mentioned um, the rings. I forgot to mention with the rings that there are gaps between yes. b- between the rings. And the, this biggest gap is the Cassini division, mm-hmm. um, which is f- almost 5,000 kilometers gap um but the rings are just lettered they don't have names they just have letters of the alphabet yeah and so every time they look at them the closer they look at them i don't know if it was the cassini space probe that did it we find out that there are more of them and they're more complex than we thought so yes just like anything else the closer you get the longer you look at it the more complex it is um so Saturn um, magnetic field. We talked a lot about Jupiter's magnetic yeah, we field. Yeah, um, Saturn's is much smaller than Jupiter's, but it's still um, 578 times that of Earth. Mm. Um, again, we're talking about a gas planet, but it's got a, a core of uh, like the pressure and heat makes um, makes a sort of solid core compresses compresses all of the gases. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been the Cassini spacecraft orbiting since January 2005, and mm-hmm. then there has also been the Huygen probe, named after that astronomer. Oh, there was a probe um, too, eh? Yes. Um, and I believe there's there's some stuff planned and going on until uh, 2017 around Saturn. So, no doubt. Lots um, of I science. Think, yeah, so um, I think there's going to be some more exciting stuff coming out um, from, coming back to us from Saturn. Um... Oh, some of the important stuff to know. So, gravity. Surface gravity is almost the same as that of Earth. Ring the bell. Ding! So, 100 pounds on Earth is yeah. 107 pounds. Oh, that's, and then, that's fine. Yeah, so our mugsometer. Piece of cake. I'm going to find where I wrote the mugsometer down. I keep forgetting to. She's an 8-pound cat. She's an 8-pound cat, so she's going to be, on Saturn, 8.52. Nothing. Yeah, so there you go. Um, a day is just over ten and a half hours, Earth hours. Ooh. So a day goes by pretty fast. Short but a day. year is twenty-nine Earth years, huh. um, because it's traveling quite a f- uh, quite a far distance. Mm-hmm. Um, rotates, and the planet rotates the same way as the Earth, uh, west to east, like, cool. like the Earth. Um, so, yeah, the um, the volume I mentioned is is all um, already um, over seven hundred times that of Earth, almost eight hundred, and the equatorial circumference is nine times the size of Earth. So, it's huge and it's gassy and it's got lots of stuff around it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. I think it's still kind of like Ribfest, <laughs> huge, gassy, and a lot of stuff around it. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Okay. <laughs> so there's Saturn, the science of so Saturn, the, yeah. encapsulated courtesy here of NASA. In 14 minutes, courtesy of NASA. It is a fantastic planet, and it, it's it's really something cool. You know, it's very easily recognizable, of course. And uh, now we'll just look at the mythology behind it. And of course. It'd be interesting to 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 look at the mythology behind it, but also to make some connections with some of the science and. 
and and that might come up in the course of our dis in the course of our discussion of it. I did note that most of the orbiting bodies, i.e., the plant, the the Saturn's the moons, moons are primarily Titans, which yeah. is kind of cool. There's also um, some Roman gods in there, Janus, of course, which is associated to one of the early kings of Latium, which the, the early gods and, and Saturn himself is, yes, is thought is, to and be is associated one. with. The time, mm -hmm. the time aspect of Saturn is also associated Absolutely. with. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and very important in the Saturnalia and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. But before oh, we go down that path, yeah. when we're looking at Saturn as a Roman god, uh, he is quite different from the Greek gods, so we'll be able to talk about their differences, but we'll also be able to talk about some of their similarities as well. So primarily the sources for um, Saturn, well, Cronus, Right, mm -hmm. uh, will be uh, this is the Greek Cronus will be from Hesiod's Theogony in the um, section that deals with his creation, and I only wanted to talk a couple of lines like where he actually speaks, so we can get an idea of his character, right? What type of god he is, uh, and um, just his parents and so on and so forth. So I think that's probably the best way of, of going about doing it. So why don't we start with our oldest source, um, Hesiod's Theogony? Yep. And we did talk a little bit about this passage um, last week mm -hmm. um, because it does tie in with Zeus and Zeus's birth. Yeah, a lot happens in the first 150 lines of the Theogony. Yeah. So, and there's and so much going on. It's kind of hard to not speak of one and not speak of the other. But we did we did sort of jump ahead with a little bit looking at Zeus. We talked about the circumstances surrounding Zeus's birth. Now this is Zeus's father, all right, Cronus, and Cronus is the um, is the son, right? A son, one of the Titan sons of Uranus, the sky god, and Gaia, the primal, primal uh, earth goddess, mm -hmm. uh, one of the primal beings. And um, we'll uh, we'll we'll have a little bit of reading uh, from Hesiod's Theogony, probably about in the one hundred somewhere. Okay. Earth first bore a child equal to herself starry sky, Uranus, to cover her all over and to be an always safe home for the blessed gods. She lay with sky and bore deep whirling ocean, and Coeus and Creus and Hyperion and Iapetus, and Thea and Rhea and Wright and Memory, and gold-crowned Phoebe and lovely Tethys. After them was born the youngest, crooked-minded Cronos, most terrible of children. He hated his lusting father. For all who were born from earth and sky were the most terrible of children, and their father hated them from the first. When any of them first would be born, he would hide them all away and not let them come up to the light. In a dark hole of earth, the evil deed pleased sky. But she, vast earth, groaned within from the strain and planned an evil, deceitful craft. Quick she made the element of grey adamant, made a great sickle, and advised her sons, speaking encouragingly while hurt in her heart. Children of me and a wicked father, if you are willing to obey, we may punish the evil outrage of your father, since he first planned unseemly deeds. She said this, but fear seized them all, and none of them spoke. But great and crooked-minded Kronos was brave, and quickly answered with speech to his dear mother. Mother, I would undertake and do this task, since I have no respect for our father, unspeakable, since he first planned unseemly deeds. He spoke, and vast earth was greatly pleased in her mind. She placed and hid him in ambush, and put in his hands a sickle with jagged teeth, and revealed the whole trick. Great sky came, bringing on night, and upon earth he lay, longing for love and fully extended. His son, from ambush, reached out with his left hand, and with his right hand took the huge sickle, long with jagged teeth, and quickly severed his own father's genitals, and threw them to fall behind. They did not fall from his hand without result, for all the bloody drops which spurted were received by earth. As the year revolved, she bore the strong furies and great giants shining in armor, holding long spears in their hands, and the nymphs. So you can see there that Muggs is trying to put in an appearance tonight. <laughs> Got the cat they were, they chiming wouldn't, in. They wouldn't hear that. They wouldn't be able yeah. to hear that. So, um... Those were that was sort of the basically the birth story of Cronus or his origin story and how he comes to power. We've taken it from Hesiod's Theogony from some different um, snippets at the beginning and kind of pieced it together for you. Um, so, Darren, 
What, uh, <laughs> where do you want to start with this? <laughs> well, I don't know. It, you know, that's a castration story. It sets up this birth and then sets up the eventual sort of theme of the castration of Kronos at the hands of uh, his son. Uranus, uh, I mean, at the hands of his son, Kronos. Um, the, the narrative is, is um, based on a, on a mythological sort of concept called the succession myth. And this is a, also known as the usurpation cycle. It's a mythological framework that talks about how one generation comes to su supremacy over another, about how sons overcome uh, their fathers and eventually assume the roles of leadership in their societies. So there's a powerful sort of succession myth motif going on here. And very early on in the story, we can see that Gaia, the primordial earth goddess, begins spontaneously creating life, and she creates sky. She creates the heavens. She creates uh, Uranus uh, as a partner, an equal, uh, someone to breed with to produce a generation of gods. But uh, his methods uh, leave something to be desired, and she is forced to take action. So um, Sky um, does not want to be overthrown, and so does not let his children be be born. And yes. this is um, he oh, sees them as a source of threat, yes. and that's a fairly common thing. You know, fathers and, and, and don't want to see their children as sources of threat, but especially in today's society, but. In ancient times, and even in the mythological context, in this idea of succession and usurpation and so on, you can see that there is a natural kind of competitive relationship that's going on there. Yeah. You know, will they be worthy? Are they ready? I'm not ready, right? Or mm -hmm. whatever it may be, right? So yeah, that's that's the subtext, the sort of in a Freudian kind of way, in a yeah. psychoanalytical way. So Earth turns to her children who are inside her and so she can communicate with them and yeah. um, she asks them for help in doing this thing. And right. Cronus, is, um, Cronus is the youngest child and we've already mentioned when we talked about Jupiter slash Zeus that yeah. that youngest child position is a favorite of the mother. Right. Um, and here you see the, the youngest child um, says... I'll do it, Mom. <laughs> he steps forward, yeah. He steps forward, and he does it. And the result of his audacity, he is, in fact, rewarded with the first kingship of, of uh, the gods. Uh, the Olympians are not yet born, so he becomes, Cronus uh, becomes the first king, and Rhea becomes the first queen, which is his sister. But I think it's important to look back at line 137, just where we get the um, description of Cronus. Of and, and in 137, 138, it does tell us that he's the last born. So birth order is important. And then it says, after them was born the youngest. So that's him, right? Crooked-minded Kronos. And there's an epithet, a descriptor, an adjective that's put in there um, that uh, tells us a little bit about his quality and his character. And you, people don't go around saying, you know, that person's crooked-minded. So we have to kind of unpack that and examine it a little bit. And then it says, in fact, that not only is he crooked-minded, but he's the most terrible of children. Now, a lot of people would gloss over that and say it's poetic language and say, no, he's like a red-headed stepchild, he's terrible. I don't know, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that somebody's terrible, right? And then it's also, uh, it also leaves us with the idea that he hated his lusting father. So thrown into two lines, we get all the information that we really need to understand the sort of psychology of a character like Uranus, or who ultimately will be, you know, of course, a Saturn as well. Uh, and at this particular point, we see not only is he the youngest born, but he's crooked-minded. And, and crooked-minded to me means something very different. It, to me, it means th that, he's, that he is different than everybody else. He doesn't think like everybody else. He possesses a different type of mind than everybody else, uh, his, those of his generation. And when we look back in the original Greek, we can see that uh, the word for crooked-minded that's used in there is uh, agulometos, right? Agulometos, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, agulometos. There's a kappa in there, agulometos. And it means crooked of counsel, but it can also mean of mind. And when you look at the second half of that word, metis. So when you, he has a metis-like quality. Metis means wily. Um, in this particular case, it's being applied to Cronus. It's also used as the same epithet to apply to Prometheus in the same story. Mm -hmm. So Cronus has Matus. Cronus has a Matus-like quality before there is even a goddess Matus. It's an inheritance that he gets from Gaia, 
something that is passed over as the female. And in this case, it's only described here in its first instance in mythology as being crooked-minded. And that word, um, agkulometas, agkulometas means crooked-minded or crooked of counsel. And it's used here for Cronus. He's just a little bit different. It's kind of like having a new ability that nobody really knows what it's like yet or how it's going to work out. So we don't really have a name for it right yet. But we can run through the rest of it, like later on in heroic myth and everything, we all talk mm -hmm. about Matus, like it's mm -hmm. a passing thing, right? Like it's well known. But here right now, it's the beginning. So he has this type of quality. And this is something that Zeus inherits as well, too. Zeus has a type of wisdom uh, in the story as well, right? A Matus-like mm -hmm. quality. And then now in the next line where it says the most terrible of children, that's another Greek adjective, Danos, right? And that terrible means like, oh, okay, but it means, like, in the sense, capable of inflicting terror, fearful, dreadful, dire, all right? He's not a really nice guy to be around. Powerful, yes, right? But kind of despotic in a way, and a frightful figure, all right? So this sort of psychopathic kind of idea is being, or psychopathy is being created around a character like Cronus right from the very beginning in just a few lines of, of poetry by Hesiod, right? setting himself apart from his siblings as the last born indifferent. Who will help? The mother turns to the children, right? Because she can't do it herself. Because she doesn't have the physical strength to get Uranus off of her. She created him as a partner and equal. So, you know, two equals. It's, well, and he's also setting Cronus up um, in opposition to yeah. his father in those mm -hmm. lines as well. He mm -hmm. hated his, his, his lusty That's father. the last section, yeah. right? So his psychology, it gives him his... His, it's, it's his principle, right? Now he has his drive, right? And he hates. And he, he hates his, his father, and his father's described as lusty, right? Yes. Lusting, lecherous, right? In a constant act of copulation, Uranus lies down physically on top of Gaia, right? Yes, and that's when Kronos um, takes, um, takes the adamite, adamant sickle that um, Gaia has Gaia made. Makes and this is a mythical element, which <clears throat> was thought to be hardest of all the metals. And its name yeah. actually means unconquerable. Yeah, and we And we see sickles um, Saturn. Being, being used um, to um, to fight monsters like Perseus and Heracles. But um, even if we just stick it with Saturn, we even stick with Saturn. Well, it's an agricultural tool. It's an right? agricultural so it's fascinating tool. Yep. because it's yeah. it's not a really a tool of weapon. A tool of what? That doesn't make sense. It's not a weapon, <laughs> weapon. of violence. Oh, it's, it's a tool, an agricultural yeah. tool used for pruning. And, and, and yeah. the fertility element of it here and the agricultural element of it here, Uranus's genitals are pruned from his body, yes, right? exactly. But what, and also, what I found interesting just in some of my research is the idea, of course, that you do get Saturn being depicted as Father Time carrying the, the, scythe, the, the sickle. scythe or the sickle, right? Uh, that is representative of not only this myth, but a number of other types of elements associated with this depiction in Roman culture. And, and also in the um, astronomical, um, no, in the astrological, in astrology, the astrological symbol, it's called the Saturn's glyph, is the cross with a sickle attached okay. to it. So when you, they all have their own astrological um, glyphs, yeah. and this one's called the Saturn's sickle. So and he, we he would know him in, in our pop culture as Old Man Time, that um, at New Year's Eve you have the baby representing yeah. the New Year and the old, the old Man Time yeah. representing the past year. And that's, totally. that's, that's where we see, see this continuation in our modern culture. Right, because the Romans were aware of Hesiod's Theogony and they adopted the gods and they knew about Saturn. But when they brought him into their culture, they changed him significantly. And he became... Um, more beneficent, he became more associated with state cult and with prosperity and agriculture mm -hmm. and the, the confluence and passage of time. And that's the sort of baby new year and all that yeah. type of stuff. There is actual baby new year in Roman mythology. It's a little figure called Aetion. And, and it's like this little chubby mm -hmm. baby kind of mm -hmm. thing. And then there's also the aged Cronus that you see in, in Roman statues. Uh, well, he's not exactly aged. He's middle-aged. He's in fairly good shape, like most of them are. But he has a full beard, and yeah. he carries a, a, a carries a scythe or a sickle, right? Yeah. And uh, that symbol is around the time of the Saturnalia, which is close to our Christmas, the 17th to the 23rd. About in December, yeah. Sure, in December. Yeah. And it's, 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 so, and, it's a very powerful Roman holiday. And, yeah, the, the, Saturn, the Greeks had one, too. The, the Saturnalia was a time of reversal as yeah. well, where yeah. you... Um, and many Works cultures, great with this myth. 
Yeah, and mm -hmm. many cultures um, have some kind of holiday where things get turned Turn on their heads. turvy. Yeah, and midwinter um, and Saturnalia. Is, yeah. is Saturnalia is the Roman um, festival where that comes down, but mm -hmm. it, I believe in there. There's other midwinter celebrations where that kind of thing happens, mm -hmm. and people can be kind of crazy and and boundaries um, boundaries get switched. You have um, slaves in charge of masters and kind of idea playing the fool and those those kinds of ideas as well with yeah. Saturnalia. So a very important Roman festival and a fun one as a way of really giving people an opportunity to let off steam and to reinforce how society is really supposed to run. But that's a different podcast. A temporary, <laughs> a temporary release from civilized constraint is yes. what my notes say. Yes, that's and a great definition. Harvest and sowing December 17th to 23rd yeah. associated with the passage of time out of the new year, yep. the old man and the baby, yep. right? Uh, the, um, the, the waning of the old year and the birth of the new year. Right, in this figure of Saturn, generation, dissolution, plenty, wealth, agriculture, periodic renewal, and yeah. of course, liberation, right? That day when the slaves become the masters and the masters become the slaves. Yeah. Liberty caps, all that type of yeah. stuff, right? So that's that's very very Roman, uniquely Roman. Now the Greeks did have the Cronia, which was a similar festival, but it just wasn't important as as, as no. important on the calendar as the Saturnalia was. The Greeks didn't really let it go as far as the, as the Romans did with their Saturnalia. Romans right? had a lot of holidays. They, they were had really a, they good had at a lot of holidays. holidays. <laughs> they had a lot of holidays. And, you know, this idea too, like, you can take all the names, and the Romans have the equivalents. Like, we have Gaia and Uranus are going to be the mother and the father, basically, of Cronus, right? Now, Saturn, right, the Roman version... His mother, of course, is Terra, which mm -hmm. is Earth. Gaia, right, yeah. or Earth, and Caelum, which means sky. He's yeah. he's the Uranus, right, the Roman Uranus. Now, there's a slightly different presentation of who the 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 wife would be. There's a little bit of change there, but we have Rhea, of course, in the Greek, and then we have Ops in the Roman, right. He's also associated with a couple of other female god goddesses. One is called Lua Saturni, or the Lua of Saturn, and the other one's called the Lua Mater, right? And uh, she's also known as the Mother of Destruction. Now, there, depending on what the context is, he might be associated with a different goddess, but that's, that's Rome for you. They like okay. to complicate things a little bit more. So, to come back to Hesiod's Theogony, then, yeah. I would like to talk a little bit about how... Uh, Cronus has taken power by force and with the help and assistance of Gaia. Yeah. But then in turn, he, he commits his the own... Old man. Yes, but then he in turn is going to commit his own crime and have power taken from him. So yeah. I'd actually like to read that passage. If, sure. If you're good with that. Yeah. Okay. Rhea, mastered by Cronus, bore illustrious children, Hestia the Hearth, Demeter, and gold-sandaled Hera, and strong Hades, who lives in a palace under the land and has a pitiless heart, and Poseidon, a loud-sounding earth-shaker, and wise Zeus, the father of gods and men, by whose thunder the wide lands are shaken. Great Cronus would swallow these, as each would come from the holy womb to his mother's knees, intending this, that none of Sky's proud line but himself would hold the honor of king over the immortals. For he learned from earth and starry sky that it was his fate that his own son would master him, although he was powerful by the counseling of great Zeus. So he kept no blind man's watch, but alertly swallowed his own children. Incurable grief held Rhea, but when she was about to bear Zeus, father of gods and men, she begged her own dear parents, earth and starry sky, to help her think of some wisdom by which she might secretly have her son and make great crooked-minded Kronos pay the furies of her father and the children he swallowed. So that's a little later from Theogony, uh, line 453 to line 474, I believe. And you can't, and you can't have, you know, myth without eating children. So exactly, and Cronus eats his kids. Spoiler alert! One of the one of my favorite. I, I have a couple of favorite paintings um, related to mythological themes, and one of them is Saturn eating his children. Mm. Which um, is that the Goya one? Yeah, the Goya one. Yeah, that's the most is, horrific. Yeah, one. it's it really is quite yeah. quite quite horrific. Yeah. But we but what we have here is the same sort of situation that we had with Earth and Sky. Sky wants to Sky wanted to 
ensure his, his rule. Here, Cronus wants to ensure his rule. He's learned from Skye, and he realizes that keeping the children inside the mother doesn't work because they can plot with the mother against him. And so his strategy is to eat the children himself. Yeah. And so his crime here, his crime that he's committing against Gaia is this failure to procreate, which is the same thing that his father did, failure to procreate and populate the earth. So he's, 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 preventing, um, he's, he's preventing his children from living. Now he eats them and swallows them, but they're still alive because they're all going to come out later. So just don't think about it too, too, too deeply there. Absolutely. Um, so he swallows each of them, and Rhea, his sister, turns to Gaia for that help. And we talked about this, almost doing this backwards, we talked about this um, with Jupiter and the idea um, that Zeus is kind of replaced with a rock wrapped up in, in a blanket that um, Kronos eats and thinks he's eating, eating Zeus. So um, Kronos here, it has become his father, but he's also learned. He's a lot he smarter. His father. He's a lot smarter. Yeah. Sky uh, Uranos, he uh, doesn't to hell with the consequences. He's not concerned with creating any children. He just wants to uh, continue with the sex act. He is lecherous in a sense that. Yeah, he just is all about the pleasure of of, of sex, and and we know, like everyone knows, that uh, sex is both pleasurable but also for procreation. And every time you have sex, you don't have to have it for uh, procreation; you can have it for pleasure as well. And he is the one who maintains that 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 pleasure principle. And Gaia, right away, and this is fascinating to me because, really, in the first say two hundred lines of he sees theogony, you get set up a real system, a rudimentary system of ancient justice. And the first crime is named and the first criminal is named. And the first criminal is named by a feminine force, Gaia, and the first criminal is Uranos. And the nature of the crime is sexual, and it's against reproduction. And she talks about it uh, very, very quickly, uh, and, and Uranos mentions it, and there is action that is taken. So one of the notes that I made in this regard because we don't really know what criminality is yet, but when informed relationships um, and sanctions and or sanctions prove insufficient to establish or maintain a desired social order, in this case, the birthing of children, action must be or may be taken by individuals or groups who agree that a crime by some agreeable condition or definition has occurred. So obviously action, action has been taken. Gaia called for it. Nobody listened. Her children, was they were too fearful, except for this one oddball one, this crooked-minded, last-born son, who I suggested earlier had this Matus-like quality, a proclivity to listen and be cagey. So it's accomplished. His father is castrated. The plan works well. Gaia provides the weapon. She provides the planning, the staging, and all he does is he's the trigger man yeah. to use a like Hitchcockian kind of metaphor. And then that's the exact metaphor, same thing right? that happens here now with Kronos. In a, yeah. Gaia is behind the plot of how to overthrow Kronos. She is. And she provides the means, the suggestion. She's involved with taking Zeus and, and, and raising she, him. Uh, yeah, that's true. But I've, I've, there's two things. One is people have a tendency to gloss over Kronos and say that He's just some sort of mindless baby-munching monster. Uh, and then the other one is that Gaia is going to be um, uh, extremely important in the, in the rise of, in the fall of Kronos. And, and, I, and I think so, but Kronos, um, uh, at least, we have to look at what he did that's different than Uranos. So Uranos suppressed his children inside the female, right? So obviously the children are sort of created, but they're never given birth. They never mm -hmm. leave the female womb space. They never leave the earth right? And then they are freed. So Kronos, now that he's been set up by Gaia, she says, here's your ascension, here's your crown, good job, take your wife and do what kings do, right? And she hands over, you know, the keys to the, the cosmos, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, children are going to be born. Gaia wants children, right? Mm -hmm. So Kronos looks at, at the situation and says, well, wh how am I going to do it? And remember I was saying that he has this sort of made us like quality, this type of wisdom. He does allow the children to be born. They actually do leave the, the womb of, of, of Rhea, right? But what he does in that, in that moment, in that instant, is he takes them and pushes them into the gaster, which I was saying is the male stomach, the yeah. substitute male womb space. 
And, then he, and he pats himself on the back for his ingenuity because he's saying, they're born, they just happen to be in me, right? And it works. It See, works five times in a row, right? Until it finally gets to the prophesied son of Zeus. And the important thing to note here is that, um, because... For I, me, it raises questions. Why doesn't Kronos just kill his kids? Well, the children, they're, immor they're immortal, right? Mm -hmm. So they're, they're immortal. So his only options are to imprison them. And how does he imprison them? He can imprison them like his father. Yeah. He can or try a new way. Mm -hmm. And then Zeus, as we have talked about, mm -hmm. Zeus learns from both, both his father and his grandfather. Yeah. And comes up with a new, new and comes up with a new way right. of, of doing you, you things. You take previous behavior, you adapt it, you learn from yeah. it, and you gain wisdom and you become something different. And, and, and Kronos did it, and Zeus does it too. And the only reason why Gaia, you know, and people say things like, gee, that Rhea, she must have been kind of clueless to have this happen time after time again until finally she gets to Zeus. Or, or people have questions, they say things like, well, why didn't Gaia do something when the moment that Demeter, for example, was swallowed? She's the first child born, right? No, Hestia, I mean. Mm -hmm. Hestia is the first one, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about a position of preeminence, right? She happens to be a feminine goddess. She's the firstborn child. Right? The firstborn child is the one that should, by all rights, have the inheritance quality. The firstborn son. Yeah, She's well, a daughter. A that's a difference, too. Yeah, that's true. But at any rate, right? Mm -hmm. all of these ones go through. And if we look very closely at, at, the, at the, the text itself, it said that there stands Kronos. He kept a vigilant watch. Never mm -hmm. did any of the child pass the holy knees of Rhea before they were snatched up and tucked into his belly. Mm -hmm. Women in the ancient world kind of gave birth standing up for the most part. Or kneeling, yeah. Yeah. And so in this analogy, with this in mind, this idea of literally catching the baby before it falls, if he was not there after it had passed the womb, right, after it came out of the mother, it would fall on the earth or it would be placed on the earth. And the earth is Gaia. And at that moment, anything that's on it is hers and she knows of it, and especially children. And she would know and she would take action just like she did. But she didn't because Cronus intercepted ah. them. Cronus intercepts them all, okay. right? Until yeah. finally Rhea's like, Something needs to be done, and she has to go directly to Gaia, because Gaia's not doing anything. How long will you wait, right, yeah. before you do something, right? So that's kind of um, what what went on there. And then Kronos, you know, for as cagey and wily as he is, he will fall, right? Yes. His succession is coming, and and, we, and that's what we talked about with Jupiter, right? So let's move on <clears throat> then and have a look at some of the Roman, the Virgil Aeneid passage yeah. that you had picked out. Because right. we'll we get will, a different flavor. We will probably be coming back to Theogony um, when we talk about Uranus. Yeah. Anyway, um, so let's let's just but, have a but, look at the. But I think we should preface it by saying, for the most part, the Greeks, especially this source, okay, that sounds odd to say the Greeks. Hesiod, he's got a bit of an axe to grind because his. Him to Zeus, i.e. the Theogony, is really a pro-Zeus approach. He's going to vilify characters like Kronos. Yeah. So we, it's, it's only natural that, you know, like I said earlier, that he'd kind of be presented as some sort of baby-eating monster, where, you know, that might not be entirely accurate. All right? So let's, let's, look at, uh, let's look at some Roman stuff. Maybe Ovid's Metamorphosis, maybe Book One. Uh, you had virtually Aeneas. I did have virtual Aeneas well, in here. They're both not? around the same sort of thing. Um, the passage from Ovid's Metamorphosis is a little smaller, okay. a little bit more general. All right. Maybe, maybe we'll uh, just start with that. Golden was the first age which, unconstrained, with heart and soul, obedient to no law, gave honor to good faith and righteousness. No punishments they knew, no fear. They read no penalties engraved on plates of bronze. No suppliant throng with, de with dread beheld their judge. No judges had they then, but, li but lived secure. No pine had yet on its high mountain felled, descended to the sea to find strange lands afar. Men knew no shores except their own. No battlements their cities yet embraced. No trumpets straight, no horns of sinuous brass. No sword, no helmet then, no need of arms. The world untroubled lived in leisured ease. Earth willingly, untouched, unwounded yet by hoe or plough, gave all her bounty's store. Men were content with nature's food unforced, and gathered strawberries on the mountainside, and cherries and the clutching bramble's fruit, and acorns fallen from Jove's spreading tree. Springtime it was, always, forever spring. The gentle zephyrs with their breathing balm caressed the flowers that sprang without a seed, and on the earth untilled brought forth her fruits, 
The unfallowed fields lay gold with heavy grain, and streams of milk and springs of nectar flowed, and yellow honey dripped from boughs of green. Oh, there's so, a beauty, huh? Yeah, so that is from Ovid's Metamorphosis, book one. Mm-hmm. Um, what does this have anything to do with Saturn, Darren? That's good, good, absolutely. Does it mention Saturn or Cronus or nope. anything like that? So Ovid is a Roman poet. Yes. So we would expect the word Saturn to appear in this one, but it does not. That's because it, uh, it needs a little bit of explanation. And this is a scene that describes the Golden Age, right? Mm-hmm. One of the metallic ages, first described by Hesiod and the Greeks, later picked up as a theme by Ovid, a Roman poet, in many sources, but also at the beginning of the Metamorphosis. And the Golden Age is a time like Eden, like what you just described, when you know men uh, and gods live together in a peaceful, harmonious relationship where the earth is fertile and uh, you know there's no work, there's no labor. It's a life life of luxury and ease. There's no there's no want in the and world. we know that this is under the reign of Saturn because this is the time of Saturn. That's immediately why, following yeah. this passage, yes. it says, "When Saturn fell to the dark underworld and Jove reigned upon mm-hmm. Earth, the silver race replaced the then gold." Then we got the silver. So, so there is a, this is the successive ages of degeneration, right? And they move through five metallic ages. There's an oddball heroic one thrown in there if you want, but it's generally a model of decline. And, you know, we, and just a few moments ago, you were saying, hold on, Darren, I thought that, you know, dude, I thought Cronus was like a nasty, father-castrating, baby-eating monster. And now you're telling me that the that Saturn's golden age was a time of peace and plenty and fertility and harmony and, and a coexistence with nature? Yes, it was, right? And that is the mythological tradition, both Greek and Roman, right? One generation takes over the next. So why don't we just highlight a few of the lines that, that give us a characteristic of just how wonderful this golden age was. Like sure. This, this is going to beat any back-in-my-day stories that you hear. Oh, tell me about so, it. So first of all, um, it says, Obedient to no law gave honor to good faith and righteousness. Right. So good people were pious people, and they didn't need a government. They didn't need judicial... No law they didn't um need need judges it was natural it was like what the greeks would call themis right yeah established custom you know in your heart of hearts what is right and what is wrong right yeah so there were no laws engraved and posted anywhere there were no punishments no judges mm-hmm. and then it says no pine had yet on its high mountain felt no send it to the sea there yep. there was no need to explore and to yep. sail to other places because there was sufficient at home yep don't cut down a tree and build a boat because you don't need why to do you need to everything it needs right here right and you know what just a few moments ago talking about that that knowing in your heart of hearts that sounds a lot like a kind of naive thing like natural law what they would call mm-hmm. natural law like in a law class mm-hmm. and that's something that you know nobody talks about anymore um, but again this is mythology right and there's the mythological mind right and it would be in your nature to know the difference between good and wrong good good and, and evil say so there's no navigation because we don't need it mm-hmm. there's no warfare there's no farming um, untouched by the hoe. And I was just going to get there we, yeah. but what but we get this wonderful agriculture type scene mm-hmm. But people don't have to do anything to get it. So no. earth willingly, untouched. Right. You don't have to hoe and plow and plant seeds. Mm-hmm. Earth just gives you everything right there. And it's enough. There's strawberries and cherries and fruit yeah, and acorns. Like an mm-hmm. And it's always springtime. It's this perpetual spring with mm-hmm. beautiful breezes playing across the land. Everlasting. The flowers that spring without a seed and the earth untilled brought forth her fruits. Mm-hmm. Unfallowed fields lay gold with heavy grain without having to lift a finger. Right. Everything men and women, well, no, sorry, men only at this point. Yeah, I'm just sorry. men. Men, it's only sorry, men, ladies. sorry. There's um, goddesses, but there are no... <laughs> Pandora comes later. Yeah, there are no um, human And there's women just yet. streams of milk and honey. Like, sure. it's just there for the asking. Yeah. It's just there for the, not even the asking, you just have to pick yeah. it up and you've got it. You don't have to, there's it's no like work Eden. at It's the all promised land. Yeah. The land of milk and honey. In many mythological traditions, traditions and many world religions, this idea 
persists, right? So here we have it. The Greeks and the Romans are no exception to their rule. And this is the time of Saturn. And that image of Saturn's time in the Golden Age is one that rolls back into the Saturnalia and that the idea of him being associated with plenty and harvest and sowing. Exactly. In fact, the Temple of Saturn held the state treasury in Rome. So, you know, if, the, if that's doesn't tell you about his association with wealth, then I don't know what does, right? You know how wealthy the empire is. The state treasury uh, is massive, right? So that's another important aspect of, of Saturn, the Roman god Saturn as well. Right? Mm -hmm. So I, I presented that idea because it changes very quickly. It moves into the Saturn. It moves into the Silver Age after that. We get the rise of Jupiter. Because we know that Kronos does commit a crime. Mm-hmm. And his crime is against his children again. Mm -hmm. right? And like he falls to the dark underworld. He's not mm -hmm. killed. Again, he's immortal. Mm -hmm. So he is locked up in Tartarus, Tartarus. Yeah. in kind of the sub-basement of Hades. Right. Um, and that's and where so he's are his, And so are his brothers and sisters, those titans that Most decided to decide some, decided to yeah. go with him in the Great War. Uh, in against the, in the Olympians. The, yeah, in the Titanomachy. That's called the yeah. Titanomachy. The Titans against the Olympians. Yeah. And, and then the Titans lost that war. But, you know, the funny thing about that is, too, that's where the mythological tradition sort of splits between Greece and Rome. Because the Greeks sort of lock him up down in the cellar in Tartarus, right? But then the Romans pick him up. And that's when he sort of comes back in and makes his appearance in Book 8 of Virgil's Aeneid. Ah. Right? And in Virgil's Aeneid, we get the idea of, well, hmm, the Romans say, well, hold on a second there, Greeks. And this is sort of metaphorically speaking. Maybe he didn't get imprisoned in Tartarus. Maybe he made it here to us, right? So that's where we will um, pick it up. Okay. These woodland places once were homes of local fauns and nymphs, together with a race of men that came from tree trunks, from hard oak. They had no way of settled life, no arts of life, no skill at yoking oxen, gathering provisions, practicing husbandry, but got their food from oaken boughs and wild game hunted down. In that first time, out of Olympian heaven, Saturn came here in flight from Jove in arms, an exile from a kingdom lost. He brought these unschooled men together from the hills where they were scattered, gave them laws and chose the name of, of Latium from his latency or safe concealment in this countryside. In his reign were the golden centuries men tell of still, so peacefully he ruled, till gradually a meaner, tarnished age came on with fever of war and lust of gain. Okay, so that's the Aeneid Book 8, line 415 to 433. Yeah, and depending upon which translation you pick, you're going to find a few different nuanced translations. This one is quite good. This one, of course, is Fitzgerald's translation. Uh, you can read a little bit more on either side. I, when I initially did my reading on this one, I had um, um, the, a Pope's okay. more more poetic um, one. But um, they both kind of get to the, the heart of the matter. Long story short, Aeneas is about to go to war, and Aeneas needs allies. And ironically enough, Aeneas, the Trojan, um, finds himself um, asking um, Evander, um, a Greek, for um, assistance. And <clears throat> in this part... <clears throat> Excuse me. They're walking in the woods and talking about a few of the things that they see um, about the myths associated with the landscape. And in this particular one, they're talking about these woods. And this is the and this is this particular area is associated with Saturn, associated with Saturn's arrival in Italy, <clears throat> specifically Latium. Okay, so this is um, Saturn. I probably just said this. This is uh, Saturn's arrival in Latium. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it says uh, in this translation, it says, Saturn came, who fled the power of Job, right? Robbed of his realm, banished from above, right? So <laughs> he's robbed of his realm and banished from above. Zeus takes over as king of Mount Olympus. So what does he do in this tradition? He doesn't go into the underworld. He doesn't go to Tartarus, as the Greeks say in Hesiod's Theogony. Aeneas, Virgil tells us here in this dialogue between Aeneas and Evander, a Greek, he said, he comes to Latium. He comes here, right? And he takes over, ruling in the woods where once nymphs and sylvan, you know, what are they? Sylvan powers, they're described, were once in charge. And fawns, you know, they're like little satyr dudes. You know, and, and also these men that are seem to be born from trees, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that's his realm, right? It's, a, it's an agricultural time. It's a time of, of peace, 
prosperity and plenty. And even in, in that translation it says, nor did they know laws, nor manners, nor were there laboring oxen, or the shining share, um, nor acts of gain, right? And yeah. whatever they gained, they gave uh, they gave willingly and what they had to spare. So you get this idea that he's a much more, much more again, beneficent and positive force in Roman mythology than he is in Greek. That's for damn sure. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> All right. So we've seen Cronus in the Greek then as this... Um, yeah, <laughs> man eating yeah. or child eating, father um, castrating, baby eating monster, yeah. and then in Cronus, right? And yeah. you know that word means time, right? And we talked about Cronus as as use of the sickle, not only as an agricultural weapon, right, to prune the genitalia of his father, but also a powerful symbol of his association with time, right? Locked up with the passage of time, the, the, the new year and the old year, right? The, the, the rise of a son over a child, a transitional force, right? A liminal force. Mm -hmm. And that idea of, of, of the sickle. And then we had the chronos. Chronos means time. And, and you know, I had to give you an idea of one of the ways to perceive a relationship with time, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> that would have you be able to tie it into the whole devouring idea. Right, because we talked about why he ate his kids, right? But we don't often talk about Cronus being associated with time in the Greek sense. In the Roman, we got it. It's yeah. easy, right? It's not a problem. We've got it. We talked about New Year and Old Year and all that. But in the Greek sense, when you say that his name might mean etiologically, I'm using that properly, right? Mm -hmm. Etion, or origin. Its origin might be in the word or associated with the word time itself, the passage of time. Either it's um, sort of, not passage, but it's arresting, it's halting, you know, because mm -hmm. we've talked about this Eden, it seems to exist yeah. in perpetuity, right? Like in a timeless space, right? And then Zeus gets along and things start happening, right? Mm -hmm. He even has children, like the seasons, and right? And so on, right? And there are no seasons before Zeus. Right, there's just this... It's just spring. It's just right. perpetual spring. It's like a dream, yeah. right? And so, now in the Greek word, that Greek word, chronos, and then now I was thinking something else came to my mind. This is what I was thinking we're about we have other other um, other segments even where we talk a little bit more about contemporary poetry or contemporary fiction that might elucidate a certain theme or topic. Now I'm going to read a small little poem. Okay. Right. Uh, and see if you can recognize it. But okay, it is in the form of a riddle, and I'm sure many of our listeners would know what it is. This thing, all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel. Grinds hard stones to meal, slays kings, ruins towns, and beats high mountains down. So that is a riddle, right? And the, the answer, answer to that is time. Yay, right? I got it right. <laughs> so here's a riddle, right? A riddle whose answer is time, chronos, right? And, and it talks about time in the sense of being the ultimate devourer, that which eats Right, so when I I keep thinking about Kronos and is associated with time and that word time, and he eats his kids, right? He's stopping it. He's stopping the succession myth. He's arresting the cycle of life. He's committing a criminal act. It might be beautiful, and it is. If we're going to take this idyllic Eden-like setting, right, and just picture it, we say, "Oh, it's beautiful," but you know what? It's a false thing because it's timeless. It's fake. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like. It's not real. Like, it would become something that wouldn't be right after a certain amount of time. You know what I mean? Like, it sounds great to say, oh, this, you know, you walk in and apples come out of the tree and, you know, the grapes yeah. give them themselves and you just sit around all day. But it would be kind of a hell in a way. But anyway, that's for another <laughs> philosophical <laughs> argument for later. But but that idea is, that little riddle, of course, mm -hmm. comes from, do you know where that comes from? No. I, we should actually see if our, we should tweet it out. But no, we can't because we won't be able to wait for responses. But that comes from Lord of the Rings. That comes from... Tolkien's oh. Hobbit, that's one of the riddles in the riddle contests under the mountain that Gollum mm. and, and Bilbo Baggins had. Oh, right, okay, yes. And the answer, of course, was time. But I liked it because that riddle, that little bit of poetry that Tolkien gave us, sets up time as being a devourer, something that eats, and is the ultimate force in the universe, mm -hmm. this, is this idea of the passage of time, right? And it's our relationship with it, right, that is the There's most no important. There's no escaping it. There's no escaping it. It just, it... 
It destroys all things. It devours all things. And it has devoured our podcast. It now. has devoured our podcast. We have come to the end of our <clears throat> podcast. And did we? Ha- uh, we don't have any listener mail, I don't think. This week? This um, week? Did you hear anything from anybody this week? No, I didn't hear anything this week, no. I remember we made a mistake in our last episode. We oh, we made correct. all kinds of mistakes. I, mean, I don't even remember what it was now. So anyway, if you're listening, do drop us a line and let us know that you're listening. Um, we would the love to hear event. from you. Um, and we do welcome corrections and further thoughts I'm and that sort of thing. I've got to pronounce that one better. Kulomatis. <laughs> yes. Um, Alpha so we will be back with our next podcast with Uranus Uranus. <laughs> that's always the fun one that's the one the kids always giggle mm-hmm. at when you learn about that one in yep. school mm-hmm. um, and then we've got uh, Neptune and Pluto after that so we've still got a little ways to go with our tour but we are getting there and um, thank you You're... for joining us yep. tonight we're glad you could join us once again follow us on Twitter I am at Innes Allison I am at Darren Sundstrom and you can visit alisoninnis.wordpress.com for some more links to um, the text and whatnot that we discussed. And, and, and we, we, uh, we used to say what the podcast's kind of tagline is. We never, oh, right. We forget the tagline now. It's myth take. A fresh take on, on ancient, ancient myth. myth. Right. Good night. <laughs>